Testing. The HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast is on the air. HPPodcraft.com Whether the dreams brought on the fever, or the fever brought on the dreams, Walter Gilman did not know. Behind everything crouched the brooding, festering horror of the ancient town, and of the moldy, unhallowed Garrett Gable, where he wrote and studied and wrestled with figures and formulae when he was not tossing on the meager iron bed. His ears were growing sensitive to a preternatural and intolerable degree, and he had long ago stopped the cheap mantle clock whose ticking had come to seem like a thunder of artillery. At night, the subtle stirring of the black city outside, the sinister scurrying of rats in the wormy partitions, and the creaking of hidden timbers in the century house were enough to give him a sense of strident pandemonium. The darkness always teemed with unexplained sound, and yet he sometimes shook with fear, lest the noises he heard should subside, and allow him to hear certain other, fainter noises which he suspected were lurking behind them. That was the first paragraph from The Dreams in the Witch House by H.P. Lovecraft. You're joining us here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and we're joined with guest host Ken Height. Hi, guys. Thanks for coming back on the show. It's always great to have you. It is always great to be on. Uh, I love doing uh, the podcast. Woo! Well, how have you been, Kenneth? It's been a while since we talked to you. What have you been up to? I've been uh, doing a ton of writing. I've, I've been working on my vampire spy thriller role-playing game, uh, Night's Black Agents, which is coming out from Paul Grain. Mm. I've been uh, writing uh, a regular series of features for a Swedish role-playing game magazine, which is pretty exciting. And I've basically signed a deal to do a Lovecraftian iPhone game. Sweet! Hey, you know, actually, I saw one of your new books at the local comic book store, The Traveling Man which is in Leeds, uh, called Clifford the Big Red God. Yes, that's right. That's the that's the third of my mini-mythos series of beloved uh, children's book uh, parodies. Uh, this is the Dunwich Horror told through the lens of Nelson Bridwell's classic Clifford the Big Red Dog. You know, I, I actually think that when we cover this, uh, did we ever mention the where the Deep Ones, go, when we were covering the Innsmouth? I don't remember hearing you mention my book. When, oh, uh, damn. Uh, bitter Tears. Boring that kind of thing. So I listened quietly with my laptop cuddled to me. That kind of thing. <laughs> well, you know, I happen to mention our local comic book store here in Leeds, The Traveling Man, because they are our sponsor this week. Hey. They are the proud sponsors of this week's episode. And the Traveling Man comic book and gaming stores, they have four locations. One in Leeds, which is one I go to. Uh, one in Manchester, one in Newcastle, and another in York. So at any of those four locations, if you could make it down there, please do. But also come this November, November 14th through the 20th is going to be the Thought Bubble Leeds Comic Book Convention, which is the biggest comic book convention in, in Leeds. So check it out. There's going to be workshops during the week and the actual con is during the weekend. Uh, some of the special and guests are going to include Dave Gibbons, you know, Watchmen, Tony Harris, who did Ex Machnia, Tim Sale, who does Spider-Man, Lisa Wood, who's an artist that's participating in the Thought Bubble Anthology that's coming out this year, and our very own INJ Colbard. He's going to be rocking it there. So don't miss out. If you need any more information, just go to thoughtbubblefestival.com and that'll tell you everything you need to know. <laughs> well, just to sew up the thread then, too, also the other two books uh, that Ken wrote that are the children's book adaptations are Where the Deep Ones Are and The Antarctic Express. Yes. Both of which are great. And are available at Traveling Man comic book stores. Yes. And other locations. Not quite so fun. Now into the story starts off with our protagonist, uh, Walter Gilman, 
Which immediately I think to myself, Gilman? Why do you think that? Because Gilman is the name of one of the Deep One families from Innsmouth. Doesn't really pan out ever in the story, but uh, Walter Gilman is a, a physics and mathematics student, and he decides that he is going to move into a haunted house. But hey, wait, I, I actually do think, well, we'll get to it when we get to it, but I do think the Gilman thing pans out in this story, actually. You do? We'll save it for when we get there. Right. But, uh, yeah, he wants to move into the haunted house in the changeless, legend-haunted city of Arkham, right? And right. So some folks have troubles with the story, but I got to say, I like anything set in Arkham. It's referenced a lot, but we get few things really, you know, there's this, there's uh, the thing on the doorstep, I think, which is coming mm-hmm. up soon, that really paint the city of Arkham and what it is and how it feels to be there and, and, and what the look of it is. And this story does an excellent job of that. It's one of the reasons I like it. Um, I think that uh, the, uh, the, the the Arkham setting is interesting, and this, that Arkham... Uh, like a lot of Lovecraft's, uh, the stuff that he comes back to, I mean, like the cast of characters, like Cthulhu or Nyarlathotep, Arkham changes from story to story. So sometimes it's sort of like the boring place that people are from, and then they go into Dunwich or they go into Innsmouth and something horrible happens, and they're glad to get back to safe, happy Arkham. Uh, you saw that in uh, the festival uh, early on. Uh-huh. And then in this story, Arkham is like, it's witch-haunted, and there's you know babies disappearing all the time, and it's just a crepuscular, changeless place that's sort of pinned uh, to the 16th to the 17th century uh, like a butterfly on a card. And it's, it's, it's treated a lot more like he treats Kingsport or like he treats um, uh, some of his other terror cities. So it's, it's fun to see the sort of the, the, the Arkham at its worst in this story. Yeah. And that, that, that's pretty great. Yeah. And bonus points for using the word crepuscular. Hey. <laughs> one, one thing that I want to point out, though, Chris, this is to uh, when we had the discussion with Donovan, uh, you and I, about where you would travel in Lovecraft country. Uh-huh. And you both had thought, well, I'd, I'd go to Arkham, no problem. On the forums, people were going crazy because they're, why would you go to Arkham? If you do, please don't drink the water because it's the one thing that you forget. <laughs> Their reservoir is built over the blasted heat. That's right. It's bad news. I mean. But. I gotta say, it doesn't seem to have affected anybody. Overtly, I mean, nobody's shriveling up and turning gray. That was one of my, my argument with Not that. in like two or three years. I mean, but obviously it takes a while for this stuff to build up. I mean, it, did, it, it didn't affect the fruit trees like that were actually on the, on the meteor for like a, a whole summer or whatever it was. That's true. That's true. So maybe it does take a while still. So he, he moves into this this house, this supposedly haunted house, and this house was where this woman had lived, Keziah Mason, and she was supposedly a witch back in 1692, and she died in prison and supposedly talked to a furry white-fanged thing. Mm-hmm. And Gilman is interested in this because he is studying non-Euclidean calculus and quantum physics at Miskatonic <laughs> University, <laughs> which uh, is cool that they offer that there. And he thinks that there is a connection between magic, you know, old, this old magic and these forbidden books and physics. And so he studied the Necronomicon and the Book of Iban and Uns Esprechen Colton and all, all that stuff. Well, for a while, until the, the, the powers that be at Miskatonic kind of said, no, well, you can't use these books anymore. So he thought if he goes over to, uh, to this house, maybe he will kind of get some insight. Yeah, it's a novel approach to things, this idea that, and personally, I think it's the best part of the story. It's a cliche now that magic is just science we don't understand yet. I think they said that 20 times in the Thor movie this summer. But the, <laughs> this is a nice approach that it's actually mathematics and that there's we don't understand quantum physics well enough, but when we do, it might lend some credence to things that are age old and, and rumored. Uh, what are the origins of the story? Well, 
I don't know this so well, but he must have been thinking about mathematics or thinking about uh, quantum physics or something like that because it hasn't really popped up before. Is there something in the origin of the story? Well, I, I've heard that now this. I'm not sure if this is right, and maybe Ken, do you know? Do you know there was he went to some kind of lecture or something? Yeah, he he went to, he went to a lecture by the guy De Sitter, whose name appears in the uh, you know up there with Einstein and Planck and Heisenberg, and it was sort of a um, explaining how you know 1931 or whatever year it was, uh, quantum physics works type thing. De Sitter apparently came up with his own notion of how uh, how the universe was structured that wasn't Einstein's notion, which I suppose is why no one's heard of him except for in Lovecraft writing now. But at the time, one assumes that he was uh, something of a uh, a big wheel in uh, the world of, of math. Uh, check on Wikipedia says that he, he dies in 1934, which might also be part of why we don't hear about him because he's he goes and he talks to Lovecraft and then he dies in two years. Hmm. <laughs> So yeah, he was um, basically an, an astronomer. He did um, uh, astrophysics and whatnot, and so he believed <laughs> the solution to the universe was that there was no matter. Huh. But this this lecture totally got Lovecraft all excited and jazzed up, right? And that's why yep. it kind of inspired him to write this thing. Yeah, I mean, Love, Lovecraft has been referring to Einstein as far back as Hypnos. I mean, Lovecraft is very much a science nerd. He's he's catching up on all the all the uh, the research about um, uh, quantum physics and and the notion that the Everything depends on your own point in the universe. The notion that uh, matter is an illusion, it, 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 you know, caused by sort of the, the random behavior of electrons. I mean, all this stuff is basically the stuff that Lovecraft then gives uh, his horrific coloration. And in the Cthulhu Mythos, it's it's an expression of modern physics. Yeah, and, and, and this is really interesting, too, in this particular story, because he, I think, really tries to mesh his supernatural stories and his science fiction stories kind of trying to bridge them even closer together like trying to fill that gap so that he's got more of a cohesive universe or at least it seems that way to me and here we see that Keziah Mason back in the day was talking about lines and curves that could be made to point out directions leading through the walls of space she has a basic understanding that there are some kind of geometric principles that can allow you to travel from place to place and, and that sort of thing. And they reference here uh, Judge Haythorn, which I found curious because that's Nathaniel Hawthorne's uh, great-great-grandfather. He was a judge that presided over the Salem witch trials. He was one of the uh. Uh, prosecutors. And something that Hawthorne was a little bit ashamed of, I think. In fact, I think he added the W to his name maybe to distance himself from that, that tradition in his family that, that he was related to this guy. Also, I, I the, this story seemed to be influenced a bit by Young Goodman Brown, which is one of Hawthorne's stories that I like quite a bit, especially the black man in the woods that is cited in, in here. And it was also cited during the Salem witchcraft trials, right? That was something that right, often yeah. was referenced in the transcripts of those trials. I think some people have a we, we'll get to it. But I think some people have a problem with the, the appearance of the black man in the woods in this story. It seems to connect to a natural uh, New England literature kind of tradition. Yeah. Well, she was um, – there was a trial for her. And in her trial, they made transcripts. That's what Gilman keeps referencing. And um, she escapes uh, jail. When she disappeared from jail, though, she did it through this uh, scientific kind of means, right? She drew some some shapes and some signs on her wall and she vanished. Yeah. And there's now the, the when you say haunted house, I think it's because people the legend is that Keziah still haunts this building that she used to, this this old house. Yes. And uh, people talk about the irregular human tooth marks left on people who sleep around that house mm-hmm. and in that house and uh, around May Eve and Hallowmas. There's a terrible stench, and of course there's Brown Jenkin, which they don't reference yet by name, but there's this furry sharp tooth thing which <laughs> haunts the structure and right. and 
nuzzles people curiously in the black hours before dawn. The use of the word nuzzle in this story is great. Yeah, because it's sort of a, you think of it as sort of an affectionate thing or word, you know, and it's really not very affectionate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> at all in this in this particular story. I would love it if the ghost hunters went to this place. That show. I just got nuzzled, bro. I felt it. I totally got nuzzled. <laughs> There's some kind of nuzzling up here. Gilman looks at this, goes into this house and checks it out. He looks in this attic room and he's looking for cryptic designs in the timbers and in the plasters and the walls and all those things. The room is shaped really strange. You know, like it's the walls don't really make any sense. They're kind of at strange angles and they, I mean, they're not relay angles where, you know, people fall into them and things like that, but they're just, it's weird. It's a weird place. Yeah. It's just an irregularly shaped room where the, the wall slants and meets the floor and the ceiling in a really odd sort of angle. Right. Exactly. And everything seems fine. Like when he moves in there, nothing weird happens until he gets a fever. Right. And also he's looking at the house and he, and he thinks that there is, um, from the outside, it looks like there's more to the house than than what he's actually seeing. Right. And he talked to the landlord. Now, other people live in this house. Now, it's not just him. There's other tenants. He says, you know, hey, there's something, you know, there's this other room here. He's like, oh, well, you know, what it is. It got boarded up or it's, you know, who cares? Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Yeah, well, there's some secret aperture above his room that he's going to take, old Kazai Mason's room. Right. As if something had been boarded up or, or hidden. There's some kind of passage up there, which you can hear rats scuttling around in all the time. Yes. When he moves into this room, I mean, he just assumes, why wouldn't Kazai want to live here? Because it has these strange angles. And isn't that how that she claimed to travel through the Yeah, well, through, through angles and things like that. And he, right. he kind of gets hypnotized by these angles. He finds himself staring at them. Mm-hmm. You know, like he'd look at him and his eyes just kind of, he would find himself sitting there for a while, like falls of doom and Conan, you know? Right. And and then that's when he gets the touch of brain fever. Well, yeah, and he's not only with does he have the brain fever, he starts to have these these dreams where he starts thinking about spaces beyond, and that's when he starts seeing Brown Jenkin. That object, no larger than a good sized rat, and quaintly called by the townspeople Brown Jenkin, seemed to have been the fruit of a remarkable case of sympathetic herd delusion. For in 1692, no less than eleven persons had testified to glimpsing it. There were recent rumors, too, with a baffling and disconcerting amount of agreement. Witnesses said it had long hair and the shape of a rat, but that its sharp-toothed, bearded face was evilly human, while its paws were like tiny human hands. It took messages betwixt old Keziah and the devil, and was nursed on the witch's blood, which it sucked like a vampire. Its voice was a kind of loathsome titter, and it could speak all languages. Of all the bizarre monstrosities in Gilman's dreams, nothing filled him with greater panic and nausea than this blasphemous and diminutive hybrid, whose image flitted across his vision in a form a thousandfold more hateful than anything his waking mind had deduced from the ancient records and the modern whispers. Sympathetic herd delusion is a great phrase, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, it, it is. I mean, this Brown Jenkins, this is so strange. This is such an odd a familiar, you know, to, to mm. which. But I mean, usually they they take the form of an animal. But this is like an animal with a human face. And he's got a n- name. Yeah. Like, why does it have this very human sounding name? Brown Jenkins. Like, did he used to be a guy? Was he transformed into this and became a minion of the devil or something? Or... But they don't ever really go into it. They don't explain it. All right. Well, I think, uh, well, first of all, I think the townspeople gave him that name. You know, this Brown Jenkins will come get you. I imagine this is something that 
everybody. But why? Had... Why call him Brown Jenkin? Well, that's you know, if you're gonna scare your kids with something, you gotta gotta give him a name. Yeah, I guess it's not a very scary name. Right? It's not a scary name. Like call him the Rat Man or the Devil Thing or the you know something like that. <laughs> Saying that Brown Jenkin is gonna crawl through your chest in the middle of the night, it hardly matters what he's named. I mean, <laughs> sure. Brown sure. Jenkin is just plain bad news, and. You you can imagine that uh, there's you know some some sort of a of a testimony given in Keziah Mason's witch trial that she was consorting with a figure named Jenkin or she was heard to call the name Jenkin or you you could imagine that the name is attached to the legend of Keziah Mason somewhere in the trial or in or in the the rumor about her as she's living here in this in this attic in Arkham when you start seeing a brown scuttling thing running around where she used to live mm-hmm. you know you can imagine them saying oh that that must be Jenkin that brown thing and then suddenly. It gets the name Brown Jenkin. The way that Lovecraft describes it, it's a really classic haunted house ghost story type, you know, affair where you've got 11 persons testifying to glimpsing it and there's recent rumors. And I mean, Lovecraft has has read a lot of of ghost stories and a lot of witchcraft trials by now. And you you can see it. It's coming back onto the page there. This part just absolutely rings true to me. I I think Brown Brown Jenkins is super, super cool. It just feels, I mean, when I first read this when I was, I don't know, 14 or 15 it freaked me out it was a really creepy thing like rat with the human face that just stuck with me i remember doing drawings in my sketchbooks of 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 brown jenkin all the time and stuff well i always had an impression and i may be totally off base that brown jenkin was actually a, the son of kazaya mason oh really that she had somehow yeah because they reference later that he has her face that he looks he's got the a twisted kind of version of kazaya's face and here it has her suckling it was nursing off of her blood. Yeah. And to me, that just has a relationship as if she, <laughs> I don't know if, you know, she got together with a rat or if it's just the <laughs> offspring of some demonic coupling or something like that. I yeah, could be could, totally wrong. but Could be, could be. You know, it's a, a, a definitely valid. I, I, I think my um, my take on Brown Jenkin, which is probably, you know, informed by Sandy Peterson's uh, uh, Call of Cthulhu description, is that Brown Jenkin was was a was a wizard who served, you know, his name was Jenkin. He served near Lothotep, you know, long ago. And his reward is he gets to be turned into a hyperdimensional rat monster. <laughs> because in, in uh, witchcraft legends, the familiar is who the devil sends to instruct you in, in lore, right? In witchcraft, uh-huh. yeah. So I, I always thought of Brown Jenkin as like the thing that trained Keziah Mason to, to use the angles and the totter, all the all the ways of Nirlathotep. That she, you know, suckles it on her blood because that's what you do with witches' familiars uh-huh. uh, through, yeah. through the witch's mark. It grows to queerly look like her either because her blood sort of turns it into her, or maybe Brown Jenkin is is her, you know, ancestor or something like that, and that's how they find Keziah Mason to recruit her to become a witch. That is ah. These lineages that like Lovecraft is so fond of. But this is just utter speculation. And that's part of what makes Brown Jenkins great. I mean, the notion of Brown Jenkins is Keziah Mason's kid is, if anything, even creepier. <laughs> well, you know, maybe it's like you say, it's just how people start to resemble their dogs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. So this, when you, you, Chris, you're saying when you first read about Brown Jenkins, it kind of scared you. It freaked you out a little yeah. bit. Yeah. I think for some people, they find the image comical. Yeah, I, I, no, I, and I could see that. You know, actually, um, I, I love Stuart Gordon, by the way. I yeah. think he's a great guy, and I, I, I love his movies. I wasn't scared in the adaptation of this. It was it was comical to me to see the dude, the rat with the human face in that. It, it looked like the uh, like the groundhog from uh, Caddyshack. Caddyshack. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've heard that before, and it's, it's true. It was just one of those things where I don't know why. Part of it can be really funny, but then there's part of it that's really creepy. And I think it's what would have been creepy about it is the, is the movement of it. Like just to see it move and then have it move like a rat, but then 
turn its head and there's a face on there. Do you remember in um, the, the 1979 remake of The Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Yeah. The Donald Sutherland movie? There was a part where a homeless guy fell asleep next to his dog, the, the pod attached to him, and it made the offspring, but it was, since the guy was sleeping right next to his dog, it was this dog with a with a dude's face, <laughs> and they just, like, put, a, a like, a man's face on a, on a dog. Like, they put a man face on a dog, and it freaked me out when I was a kid. I mean, I couldn't sleep for weeks when I saw that thing. And I don't remember seeing the end of the movie. I don't remember any. It was so disturbing because it, it moved like a dog, but it had a man's face. So, you know, <laughs> maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me. I think the part of the reason that Brown Jenkins is creepy is because you never really, you never get a chance to examine Brown Jenkins. He's nibbling at you from the fringes of your dream. I mean, if I had a dream about a rat with a human face, it'd probably be horrifying. If I was holding it in my hands, it might not be as scary. Yeah. It was off-putting to me in the story, and in a good way, in a way it's supposed to be, I think. Anyway, back to Gilman. Sure, he's having these dreams that consist largely of plunges through limitless abysses and strangely colored twilight, and uh, this, there's all kinds of weird things floating around. I mean, it really seems like from beyond here. He's hitting the boundaries of dream worlds and other dimensions and that kind yeah. of thing, right? There's yeah. there's inorganic masses of prisms and two cubes and planes and cyclopean buildings, bubbles, centipedes. Yeah, but there's also living things or things that are sort of seem to be alive that are like bubbles and like centipedes and like Hindu gods and all this stuff. And this terrible roaring, shrieking sound which kind of builds and builds. And that really reminded me of From From Beyond because he references sound a lot in that story and how it sounds like a torture of your body just hearing it. And he, and, and this dread. There's this constant sense of, of, of dread. Aside from this oddness, though, there are other dreams, it says. But it was not in these vortices of complete alienage that he saw Brown Jenkin. That shocking little horror was reserved for certain lighter, sharper dreams which assailed him just before he dropped into the fullest depths of sleep. He would be lying in the dark, fighting to keep awake, when a faint, lambent glow would seem to shimmer around the centuried room, showing in a violet mist the convergence of angled planes which had seized his brain so insidiously. The horror would appear to pop out of the rat hole in the corner and patter toward him over the sagging, wide-planked floor with evil expectancy in its tiny, bearded, human face. But mercifully, this dream always melted away before the object got close enough to nuzzle him. It had hellishly long, sharp canine teeth. That, that creeps me out, man! That is so creepy! Just to, you can't do anything, and you hear the little patter, patter, and you hear crawling up on the bed, and it's just getting closer to your neck and closer to your neck, and then that's it. Oh, that's great. I also like that uh, there's all the rat holes in his room are plugged up, and they always the plugs always get gnawed through. When the landlord puts a tin over the hole, there's just a new one that springs up the next day. Yeah, it's um if you've got a if you've got a serious rat phobia, this is this is one of Lovecraft's really scariest stories. The notion that the rats can can chew through the wall and get to you any time. It's such a great mirroring of what Lovecraft is talking about, about hyperspace, about how these, these, this, this horrific nightmare can, can crawl through the walls of the universe and get to you at any time. That yeah. it's, it's really just sort of a, you know, an accident that, that our attic room, the, the universe's attic room is still standing. <laughs> yeah. It, it just, you know, there's nothing about this story that is not terrifically terrifically creepy to me and when you say from beyond i i absolutely think this is like him working out the from beyond theme the the notion that if you just open your eyes wide enough you'll go insane because you'll suddenly realize what you're standing in true the air around us is poison yeah exactly there's a little game that gets set up at this point of the story that i really like where gilman 
terrible things happen to Gilman, and then he thinks about seeing the doctor, and then he decides not to. This happens. (laughs) It's almost like a refrain in the story that gets comical, I think, as it goes along, when something really awful will happen, and then he'll say, maybe I should see that nerve specialist, but I'll put it off. I need to do a little more reading, or I need to have it, you know? (laughs) He just keeps putting it off and putting it off. Well, he's he's not doing well in school. It's it's starting to to affect him and stuff. Yeah, he fails in calculus D. And uh, general psychology. Yeah. Strangely enough, I was going to say it's <laughs> probably not that hard to imagine why he's feeling general psychology. <laughs> well, Brown Jenkins, as he's showing up, is starting to bring a companion with him, right? Yeah, the bent old woman. Which is, uh, it's great discovery that she actually looks like a witch. This is sort of the traditional witch. Yeah, exactly. Because she's a bent old woman with the crazy, you know, disgusting garments, and I mean, it's just, it's everything. I, you know, I think he even references the broom later in the yes, story. Yes, he does. Is, yeah. This is a straight-up witch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and she uh, visits him in his nightly fantasy. <laughs> One of the nice things about the introduction of, of the old woman is that it comes out of the nebulous blur, and you get the sense that he's slowly he's having these dreams about um, Brown Jenkins every night. It's slowly accompanied by a blur, and the blur slowly resolves into a, a, the old crone. You can imagine Gilman thinking to himself, oh, well, I'm living in a witch's attic, so this is why my dream is taking on the, the shape of a witch. Right. That, you, you, it maintains just a little bit of plausible deniability. I mean, obviously, it being Lovecraft, we know for sure what it is. But yeah. it, it, it gives you a little more of a reason why, you know, the, 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 the character might believe that this is somehow normal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that it does push it a little bit uh, towards the end of the story where I'm like, why does why is he even in the same town by the end yeah, of this thing? Right. It's like, get the hell out of there, man. What are you doing? Well, in, he, he is uh, in these dreams when he's meeting Brown Jenkins and, and the bent old woman. He thinks that he's having some sort of conversations with them. He can't remember these things when he wakes up, but aside from failing some of his other university courses, he's getting better at other things. He's getting an intuitive knack for solving equations, uh, Riemannian equations, and he's astonishing his professors because he suddenly comprehends fourth dimensional problems and the rest of the class doesn't know where this knowledge is coming from. And he's got this theory that he's even presented to his classmates that given mathematical knowledge, you could go from one point on the Earth to any other celestial body or really anywhere else in the cosmos. And the professor's stoked. Everybody thinks that this guy's a genius and stuff. Well, it reminded me a bit of that book, A Wrinkle in Time, that I read. I don't know. I read it in junior high or something like that. But that's about witches who can travel through space and time, right? Yeah. There's that, That's sort of the type. I mean, there's. I remember there's an illustration in the book where they explain Tesseract or the, the concept that you could go through the fourth dimension. or They have those characters, Mrs. Who and Mrs. What's-It, and they demonstrate how they travel by they have a string with an ant on one side, and the ant would normally crawl across the string to the other side, and then they fold the string to show that that's how they travel. The ant is in point A, goes to point B by folding the string. So essentially they they use some kind of, you might say, mathematics to, to fold space so they can just go from one point to the other quite easily. I don't know if the author of that was reading Lovecraft, but it seems like the same kind of witchy idea. Well, another thing, too, that he brings up is that Gilman ties in, again, the old uh, magical lore that's been transmitted down through the ages by mm-hmm. human and pre-human peoples that right. somehow had some understanding of this stuff. Thing. And his professors admit that's history. But then again, of course, these are professors at Miskatonic University. So they probably probably already have some suspicions, if not actual knowledge about these types of things. But he's also having some sleepwalking problems around this time, right? The neighbors hear him waltzing around his uh, his room at night. Yeah, one of his uh, fellow launchers, Frank Elwood, uh, talks to him. Now, Frank Elwood is the third blues brother. <laughs> no, he comes over to ask for some help with physics, and that's when he kind of n- notices that uh, that Gilman's gone, but his clothes and his shoes were still there. Wait, his clothes? Really? 
Well, he's wearing his night clothes. Yeah, he has his night clothes on. His pajamas. Oh, right, 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 yeah. Yeah, he didn't teleport out of his clothes. He's no, he, no, he no. Just, he went wandering off in his um uh, in his uh, yeah. nightshirt or whatever. Yeah, it wasn't like he evaporated out of his clothes. It was that he hadn't gotten dressed to go out into the world. He was just in his pajamas, which unintentionally paints a kind of funny scenario later when people are seeing a witch, a rat, a tall black man, and a guy in his pajamas out doing something. <laughs> <laughs> I do get a big kick out of that. Yeah, it's not your normal occult uh, coterie running around and there's a guy in his pajamas. No. <laughs> And that concludes the first part of our coverage of The Dreams in the Witch House with guest host Ken Height. I also want to thank our reader, Dave Stinton, for doing a kick-ass job. Good job, Dave. Dave will be with us for the remainder of the story. I also want to thank our web guru, Mike Mann, for all of his support. And we're also still doing our ransom for the reading of The Call of Cthulhu by Andrew Lehman. Uh, we are more than two-thirds of the way there, so please keep contributing. Your contributions help keep the show running. And of course, I must thank our sponsors, The Traveling Man. The Traveling Man has fine stores in York, Newcastle, Manchester, and Leeds. Leeds is, of course, the one I go to all the time. So, hey, if you're in the neighborhood, swing by, check it out. They've got games, comic books, role-playing games, and some great Lovecraftian stuff, uh, t-shirts and all that jazz. It's a great store. Please patronize it. And don't forget about Thought Bubble Comic Book Convention coming up November 14th through the 20th in Leeds. You can find out more information about it at thoughtbubblefestival.com. Please tune in next week for part two of our coverage of The Dreams in the Witch House with guest host Ken Height. I am Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Ah!